0: Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Now that is just one of the more confrontational questions that you get asked, isn't it? It's one of those questions that implies that you have done something wrong, that you have overstepped your boundaries, and you don't know how to react. Do you retreat in silence, or do you engage? Often we, we pause, and we, we, we feel the sting because it reminds us of another question that we sometimes get asked. What, are you special or something? Now, sometimes you realize that you were in the wrong. And despite the harshness of the rebuke, despite it feeling a bit more condescending than it probably needs to be, you realize that you were wrong. And you, 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 you might come clean and apologize. I'm sorry, I didn't realize that I was speaking out of turn. And sometimes, whether you're actually right or actually wrong, it doesn't matter to you. You just come back and you roar like a lion. Let me tell you who I am. And usually that conversation doesn't end well at all, right? And sometimes it turns out that you are acting appropriately. And you have been given a message to give. You've been been sent with a message to give. And you have to give it. Now, I mention this because a lot of times this question is raised in our conversations about social justice and personal ethics. Sometimes it's, we're we're the ones asking the question, who do you think you are accusing me of this or of that? And sometimes we're the ones being asked, who do you think you are telling me how to live my life? Well, friends, we're really glad that you made it today. We're glad that you braved the elements to get to this campus or to get uh, to any of our campuses. And if you're watching online, we're grateful that you made it in, in however it is that you got here. We are in week two of our new Lenten series, Broken. And last week, Pastor Brian kicked off the series with a resonating message on lament from the book of Hosea. And it really did resonate with us. And on Ash Wednesday, Pastor Ruthie brought us a powerful message from the book of Joel and many gathered here from all different campuses, and we began our Lent in humility and receiving ashes. And as we journey to Easter, we want to continue to understand and practice our lament, specifically naming what's broken and, re- and going into repentance. Now, God uses many things and, and many instruments, and among those instruments are sent messengers. And so as we continue this series on the Minor Prophets, we'll see that they have a way of calling out what's wrong, awakening those in their world, and also challenging us in ours. Now, we might think that a prophet just just says whatever is on their minds, but as we see in Scripture, often it's the prophets who are holding up the mirrors to the people and saying, who do you think you are, and giving a message from God. As we said last week, this, this series is going to hit some tough topics, some things that will challenge us, some that might anger us. We want to be able to name the wrong, we want to lament it, and we want to repent individually and collectively as a faith community. And at times we'll speak into current societal and political tensions that we're living in, and we'll do this without being partisan. And our hope is that we will uncover wisdom and perspective and also the ability to dialogue with one another. And we can do this if we don't give up on each other, if we lament together, if we repent together, and again, if we walk alongside each other. And so today we're looking at the book of Micah, and he's another one of the minor prophets, and he covers a lot of ground, and he talks a lot about justice, he talks a lot about wisdom, and one of the injustices that he talks a lot about is specifically on corruption. And we want to talk about corruption in its many forms this morning. Corruption. Corruption. I mean, not exactly a word that gets you excited. It's one of those words that makes you feel like, ah, here we go again. Why? Because we're all tired of corruption. It's everywhere and it ruins everything and it contributes to our cynicism. Now, before we go any further, let's be sure that we we know what we're talking about when we say corruption. Here's the definition that we want to use. Corruption is the dishonest or fraudulent conduct by those in power. And often it comes at the expense of others. Dishonest or fraudulent conduct by those in power. And perhaps they use their power to gain money or to gain status or pleasure or success or some other form of gain. And what is power? Power is it's in, it's our authority or our influence or our ability to get things done. So authority, influence, and ability. Often there are a number of people involved in corruption, and and sometimes there's a cover-up. And they were supposed to be the gatekeepers. They were supposed to be the good guys, but instead they took advantage of the situation, and they used their power and privilege, and they used it to their benefit at the expense of probably the most vulnerable. Who do they think they are? And just when you think that you can believe in an elected official or a noble public figure or a popular athlete, News often breaks out with some form of allegation of misconduct or corruption. This is evident in all sectors. It, it includes government, business, education, entertainment, and yes, even the church. Church scandals strike a particular chord with me. We hear the church scandals and church cover-ups all too often. Sadly, in connection with the Me Too movement, there is a hashtag movement called Church Too. And it is heartbreaking. It's necessary for us as Christ followers to call out what is wrong, to lament and to repent of our own scandals, never to cover up or pretend otherwise, because so much is lost when we do that. There's the pain of the victimized, there's a the loss of trust that's created. And of course, as, for us as Christ followers, we lament the new set of obstacles that are put between the victims and between Jesus. And the corrupt put the obstacle there. The corrupt, you know, sadly, pastors and elders are even involved in these cover-ups. Because some seem more interested in covering for their male counterparts and saving their reputations than for the pain of the victim. But for many pastors and elders, this kind of cover-up is infuriating because we see how it damages people's faith, both those directly involved and those who will learn about it later. Often pastors are among those picking up the pieces of damaged lives and the result of the inability of those church leaders to appropriately handle the abusive situation. This is tragic. And it's infuriating. We can find corruption everywhere, everywhere. Even if you go on Netflix, if you just type in corruption, you could literally watch months and months worth of documentaries and exposés on Netflix. There's a series right now called Rotten Money that covers all sorts of unsavory financial practices from bad loans to shady schemes. Just about every industry has dirt on it. The food industry, the clothing industry, energy, pharmaceuticals, and of course, sports corruption. Many of us are watching the Olympics, and I'm, I'm very interested in curling. Any, any, any super curling fans <laughs> here? Yeah, yeah, you feel it, yes. If there is a curling scandal, I'm not turning this thing on for another four years. I give you my word. But there's, others, there's another huge scandal going on in the Olympics that we've heard about, and that involves a national Russian team. It is banned. In fact, a Russian athlete competing has to compete under the moniker Olympic athlete from Russia without their national flag being displayed. And that is because of a systemic state-run doping scandal that was uncovered from the Sochi Olympics. You can watch a documentary on that too, it's called Icarus. I mean, nothing is off limits. There was even a scandal in my fantasy baseball league when I lost as a direct result of it. And as a result of that, we have an opening. So if anybody is interested in spending a season full of misery and frustration for something that's completely meaningless, please see me after the service. I can sign you up. (laughs) But the reality is that there is corruption everywhere around us, in every sector, in every person, in every civilization, in every time period, including in ancient Israel. And today we want to look at the prophet Micah, who God sends to Israel to talk about their corruption Now Micah is broken up into three different sections, and each section begins with the word here, and he's prophesying again about the corruption of the rich and the powerful and these leaders who are supposed to do one thing but did another. And he also gives a very important prophecy about the Messiah. But let's look at verse 1 and and, and, and get things started here. Verse 1 says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear you peoples, all of you, listen, earth, and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may, be, may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Now, Mike, his ministry spans across the reigns of three kings, and he covers about 50 years from 775 to 725 BC. Uh, he overlaps a little bit of Hosea, who we talked about last week, and he also overlaps a little bit of Amos, who we'll talk about next week. And he's a contemporary of Isaiah. And Israel and Judah have long been divided into two kingdoms at this point, okay? And Assyria is about to conquer Samaria, which is the capital of the northern kingdom. And Micah is writing from the southern kingdom in Judah. And he's saying, he's prophesying, you guys are next. We are next here in the southern kingdom if we don't get our act together. Micah is the first prophet to say that Jerusalem will be destroyed and about 150 years later, in the year 587 BC, it was. That's who Micah is. Let's move to chapter 2. He says Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning's light, they carry it out because it's in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize, and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud people of their homes, they rob them of their inheritance. Therefore, the Lord says, I am planning disaster against his people from which you cannot save yourselves. This morning, we want to look at a few different forms of corruption. And the first is the corruption of power. Now, the corruption of power is manipulating an outcome that you are entrusted to preside justly over. Manipulating an outcome that you have been entrusted to preside justly over. In chapter 2, Micah calls this corruption of the rich and the powerful out because they have seized fields and homes and defrauded people out of land, out of inheritances. And the powerful, they conspired with each other. They, they offered these predatory loans. They charged super high interest rates. They, they were involved in debt slavery and excessive taxation. And they, they were also a part of unfair judicial decisions. This often let the ordi- left the ordinary citizen without any recourse. And they were just, there was nothing there to protect them. Now, you may have heard some of these stories, as we have a really famous one in the Bible from 1 Kings 21. And it's a story of a man named Naboth who owned a vineyard next to King Ahab. And if you know the story, the king wanted this vineyard, but Naboth didn't want to sell it. And the Bible tells us that the king was really upset about this, and he whined and he sulked. And his queen, Jezreel, got involved. And so she had Naboth arrested on, char- on false charges. And then she had him stoned. After his death, the king took the field. And he thought he was in the clear until Elijah got involved. And he entered in and he prophesied a judgment against the king and the queen and all their descendants. The story doesn't end there, but you can read about it in 1 Kings 21. Now, But that was, a, 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 that was part of the corruption of the ancient world, and that, and that was a typical example. And God was very angry at this. Who do you people think you are to act like that? Micah has been referred to as the prophet of the poor. But one commentator suggested that perhaps we should see him more as the prophet of the middle class. Because he was trying to protect people from becoming poor at the hands of the rich. Micah three calls out these leaders, the religious establishments. And as we continue, we'll see a little bit more of that. It says in chapter three, her leaders judge for a bribe. Her priests teach for a price and her prophets sell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. And here we have our second form of corruption, the corruption of character. This form of corruption is where we compromise our integrity for the sake of personal gain. Where We compromise our integrity for the sake of personal gain. Bribes and teaching for a price. That's a little bit harder for, for some of us to, to relate to in our current context. Uh, but here at Grace Chapel, that's actually exactly how we choose next week's worship songs. That's right. After every one of our service at every one of our campuses, somebody gives one of our worship leaders $50 and the next week we sing oceans, that's, that's, how it happens. That's how it happens for $75. You can give, you can give $75 to me and we won't sing oceans. Okay. I'm kidding. I like that song. I, it's, it's a great song. Okay. <laughs> but beyond the jokes, the reality is that while most of us don't operate on a system of bribes, like the way that we see in the movies and the news, the part that we actually do relate to is that we all know that we have a price. And the other part that we might be able to relate to that Micah calls out is there's this thing where the guilty feel that they will get away with it. Did you you catch that part? Is not the Lord among us? No disaster will come upon us. The guilty always think they'll get away with it. You have a price. I have a price. In my first month of ministry, I realized this. I had organized my first student ministry activity. It was a ticketed event. I created a spreadsheet and a budget for it. I collected all the money and I was set to turn it in. And that Sunday, a gentleman that I hardly knew, who didn't have any kids in our youth group, he gave me $50, and and he said, do what you need to do with this. And it was implied that this was going to be for a family that wanted to participate in an activity but didn't have the funds to do so. Well, I took that money and I put it in the envelope next to the other envelope that I was going to turn into the staff accountant. And on my way home, I realized that we had actually come out ahead on the activity, and, and that money was going to go unused. And as naive as it sounds, I realized that nobody knows about this money except for me. And it was the first time that I had control of unaccounted for money. I could do whatever I wanted with this. Now I grew up in a home where we said things like, how much is your integrity worth? And I knew that my integrity was worth more than $50. That was meant for laser tag. So that money was safe, but, but as I kept driving, I started to ask myself the other questions. Is my integrity worth more than $1,000? Is my integrity worth more than $1,000? Now, when you apply the logic to yourself, you realize that no one throws away their career for $1,000. Yet, there have been many people who have thrown away so much for so little. And that's the way that temptation works. Because it asks you these, these sets of questions. Well, is your integrity worth $10,000. and it keeps distracting you with the amount, and then there's a tag at the end of those questions, and it says, is your integrity worth more than $100,000 that no one will ever know about? That's the way temptation works. How much is your integrity worth? Understanding this allows us to come to grips with our own sense of corruption of character. Now put money aside for a moment. Is your integrity worth more than the promotion that you will get if you cover for the company or for the corrupt boss or for the system? Is your integrity worth more than than the boost in status or those illegitimate perks that are nice to have or your position or your get out of jail free card? You know the card, it's called watch my back and and I'll watch yours. There's this unspoken mantra practiced all over the world of this practice of watching out for your own And that could mean a lot of things in a lot of different contexts. And that can mutate to something systemic. Again, we want to see that corruption is any violation of trust or abuse of your power for personal gain, often at the expense of others. Well, here was a sobering realization that I came to as a newbie in church ministry. You are broken just like everybody else. Who do you think you are? I knew I had a price. I didn't know what it was exactly. I I, I didn't know the precise circumstances. I didn't know the day, but I knew that I could succumb to that form of temptation, any form of temptation. I was corruptible and that terrified me. There was this realization in the time of soul searching that that in retrospect has become more of a gift. Indeed, there was no point in, in in pretending that I was incorruptible. But instead, in humility, in weakness, in my human frailty, I needed the strength of Jesus. And I needed to go to him in that weakness and say, I need your strength, Lord. Now, that's something that is true for all careers. That is something that is true for all sectors and all aspects of life where we we realize, I am not going to survive this without the strength of Jesus. This is true for parenting. This is true for school. This is true for any vocation or any sense of responsibility that we have. We need the Lord's strength. We don't pray for the Lord's strength out of a sense, out of cliche. We pray for the Lord's strength because we are all broken. We are all susceptible to being corrupted. Now, there are other forms of corruption that Micah calls out here. I want to show you another another one in chapter six. Am I still to forget your ill-gotten treasures, your wicked house, and the short ephah, which is accursed? Shall I acquit someone with dishonest scales, with a bag of false weights. Your rich people are violent, your inhabitants are liars, and their tongues speak deceitfully. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. We can appreciate the lament and what Micah says about violence and deceit, but we have a harder time understanding things like dishonest scales and, and the short ephah. The short ephah, what is that? The ephah is an ancient measurement of a bushel. Can you, can you say ephah with me here? Ephah. I'm sorry, there was a few people in Wilmington and a few people watching online that did not participate. Could, could, could we do that again on three? One, two, three. Ephah. It's a good word. Oh, yeah, say it with conviction. Thank you. Now, you, we may have a hard time relating to the ephah, the short ephah. And if we read too quickly through this, we're going to say things like, you know, disrupt, uh, d- corruption is bad and all, but I'm not really that scandalous. I, I, I don't. I'm not involved in any type of bribes. I, I, I don't. Uh, I don't use these dishonest scales or these ephahs. Uh, I, I don't embezzle, un, unless you count the number of Grace Chapel pens that I have accumulated <laughs> in, into my home. Friends, we are on to you. Okay, we are on to you. The the, the rate that we are ordering pens at this place. I'm like it is making us realize that. Not not that many people come here. (laughs) Friends, bring back the ephahs of pens that you have have brought. And no judgment. We we, we just need some. (laughs) No, if we read too fast, we're we're going to miss the deeper part of it. If we read too fast, we're not going to get a sense of our own corruption. People use dishonest scales. We do. We use different prices to make certain people pay more than others. We use dishonest scales when when we apply different standards to different types of people. That is a form of unfair favoritism. Those are different scales. When we favor people of our skin color in hiring or renting or loaning or doing some other form of business, when we do a favor for someone who can do something for us in return, when we favor the wealthy or the desirable, or when we practice nepotism or any form of manipulation or some other quality that robs the opportunity from one that is deserving, and it gives it to someone a little bit less deserving, but, but, but we favor them for arbitrary reasons, because they're one of us. Those are dishonest scales, and that can slip very easily into corruption. Now, I wanna be clear here. Doing a favor for someone and favoritism with corruption are different things. Helping your neighbor or a loved one get a job in in your career or in your office or or in your company or in your sector, that's a good thing. Now talking your boss out of hiring a legitimately better candidate for your office in order for your less qualified buddy, that is a form of dishonest scales. That is a form of corruption in our character. So let's go back for a moment just before that moment of our greed where we decide to use the the dishonest scales, there's something else that is happening before our, our, our character becomes corrupted, and that is our compassion becomes corrupted. That's our third form of corruption, the corruption of compassion, when our concern for the other becomes less loving and less relevant. Often, the concern for compassion is the first thing to go, what happens when our hearts become desensitized? Our compassion becomes corrupted. Early in this chapter, in these famous verses of Micah that, we're, that we haven't got to yet, Micah quotes from Moses in Deuteronomy. In that section, Moses reminds his people what God is like and what God is commanding his people. He says in Deuteronomy, He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the foreigner residing among, your, among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. He loves the foreigner among you. I keep getting convicted about this every time I hear the news. My card's on the table here. I am a proud and grateful second generation Egyptian American. I was born in this country in New Jersey. My parents immigrated legally here about 40 years ago and they came uh, they, when they came, they were able to go through the path of citizenship the way that you are supposed to. And yet also, I have many different and a wide spectrum of opinions on immigration reform, because it is a very complicated matter that has taken many different shapes over the, over the course of time. I have a heart for refugees, those who have been displaced from their homes because of famine or war or some other catastrophe, and they can't go home. And I'm sensitive to the DACA issue. I'm praying for a legitimate solution. And I have taken private citizen type of actions that I hope help. Now we all know that we're not just talking about issues here. We are talking about people here. We all know this. Real lives. And our systems are broken. Our current solutions are broken. And when we, when we debate our opinions, we also realize that even the way that we are describing the situation are broken in our own different ways. The way that we're receiving the news are sometimes broken. So what do we do? Well, friends, let's keep thinking. Let's keep advocating. Let's keep in dialogue with each other. And, but because the situation is complicated and broken— then we must also keep broken hearts for the marginalized in all of their different forms. This is where lament helps us. Even if our situations take us in a a different route, we begin together with a common ground of compassion and in lament. Let us be on guard that our compassion does not become corrupted. On my heart this morning, as, as I'm sure is on your hearts as well, is the news of the school shooting in Parkland and in Broward County, Florida, that left 17 high school students dead. I mean, we are heartsick. We're saddened. We're angry. And we we feel the the words of, of the psalmist, how long must we sing this song? To add to the frustration, there's the reoccurring cycle of debates on semiotic weapons and mental health and safe school policies and the second amendment and lobbyists and legislature and gun industry and more. How long must we sing this song? I have my opinions and you have your opinions. I'm sure we would agree on certain parts and I'm sure we would disagree on other parts. I'm a big believer in the need for nuance especially in a world that does not follow clear-cut rules. And so may we always offer respect to each other, especially as we seek to understand, but may our starting point be in compassion and in lament. I want to pick up where Pastor Brian left off from last week when he spoke on the need to lament first. We must continue to begin in lament, and that does not mean that we won't move, move past that. We, we, we must, of course, But we need to begin in lament, and probably daily, because it's in lament that we cry out to God with an expectation that God will act, and that he will also give us hearts that will will help us look for ways that we might join and enter in. And so, friends, as we continue lamenting in this series, I'd like to ask you to consider to lament with somebody who thinks differently on a particular issue than you do to meet with that person and not to bring your statistics, not to bring your anecdotes, not to bring your arguments and your rhetoric, but to meet with that person for the specific purpose of listening, of lamenting, and of praying for the other, especially for the person who doesn't have your position. It could be an issue that we have talked about already. It could be about any pain of any marginalized community, whether it be our loved ones in the gay and transgender community, or from those from a different faith or a non-faith, or anyone who's being scapegoated, or anyone who's being pushed out, anyone who's being harassed, because it is here where God often meets us. So may we gather first to listen, lament, and pray. And if we begin here, I believe it will alter the conversation. It will shift the tone. And who knows what else might change? For Lent this year, Instead of giving up something, I've decided to add a daily reading and a reflection of what's called the Repentance Project in American Lent, and it's focusing on the history of slavery and the oppression of the African-American community, and it was created by some Christians that I really respect, like David Bailey and Andy Crouch and and many others, and it's framed in scripture and confession along with readings of history aimed to help us understand the consequences that slavery has created. Thursday's reading was specifically on lament. And Friday's reading was on the three-fifths compromise. And yesterday was, uh, was from Howard Thurman uh, on, on his famous book, Jesus and the Disinherited. And it's been, it's, been, it's been very helpful to me. And I believe it'll be very helpful to those who, who, who want to listen and understand of what is still broken in our society today and affecting the lives of millions of people from all racial and ethnic backgrounds. Brothers and sisters in Christ, there is so much to lament because it is a broken and hurting world. And we are often left wondering, what can we really do about it? We feel powerless in this way. Well, there's two things that, that we want to highlight as, as, as we round out our time here. The prophet Micah knows the frailty and the corruption of the heart, and he offers this, these, these popular words as, as part of the solution. It says in Micah 6, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. Oh, those are rich, rich verses. Here, God wants to reveal his rich goodness and and show us his incredible kindness. He's saying, I don't want your cattle. I don't want your fancy offerings. Of course, I don't want your firstborn. No, instead, God is saying, what I want is for you to order your life in a way that imitates God. And what is that specifically? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. This is how Micah invites us to respond to the corruption in our world and also the corruption in our hearts. When we seek justice, we join God in his righteousness and in his redemption of all things. And when we love mercy, we love God and we show compassion to the other. And when we walk in humility, we own both. We own our corruption and our forgiveness that God gives. I invite you to consider the influence and the power that you have Who who can you speak up for? Who can you reach out to with your power and your influence? And if you needed an example of someone who got that right, I have an example coming up. I said there were two things. One was to live out the spirit of Micah 6.8. And the second is to put our trust in the only one who was not corrupt. And that is Jesus, the incorruptible. We go back to chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, Though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who was in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to, jo- to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord our God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach out to the ends of the earth. Oh, that's good stuff, too. And we read that passage just about every Christmas. And Micah is prophesying that the one, the Messiah, is going to come from this small, insignificant town. Who do you think you are, O little town of Bethlehem? But here, then, in verse 4, Micah is saying that this Jesus, this Messiah, will stand and shepherd the flock the way that the leaders were supposed to shepherd their flocks. And he's contrasting the greatness of Jesus with the corruption of the religious leaders in his, con- in his context. Jesus, the incorruptible. May we put our trust in him. I don't want to get too far ahead in our Lenten journey, but this is really exciting stuff, especially when you consider that this was written 750 years before the Gospels appear, before Jesus steps, on, steps foot on this planet. But we are all broken and there's only one who was not, and he is the one that we follow, which lands us here. As we lament our brokenness, we must do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly before God in the power of the incorruptible Jesus. As we lament our brokenness, we must do justice, love mercy, walk humbly before our God in the power of the incorruptible Jesus. When I mentioned this topic of, of of, of lament and, and the sermon of Micah to my wife Susan, her, her eyes lit up, uh, not, not so much in the admiration of her husband to, to preach to the people of the church, uh, but more in the sense of mischief, and, and I can tell. She said, Micah, huh? You're gonna tell everyone what you said to me on our first date, right? And, you know, I was kind of like, oh. Uh, I mean, like that I said that you were pretty, and I liked your laugh, and you had cute shoes, that sort of thing. I don't know if people really want to hear that. She's like, that's, that's not what I'm talking about, and, and you know that's not what I'm talking about. I was like, I, I wasn't planning on mentioning it at all. I don't think people are interested in that sort of thing. And she convinced me otherwise. And, and she, so I, I, I assume that she, you are interested in what I said on my first date as it relates to the prophet Micah. Well, Susan and I met in college and we, we found a rhythm of conversation because we were both small group leaders for our respective dorms. And as part of that commitment, uh, we went to a, a weekly meeting that was offered during different parts of, of the week. And uh, it was coincidentally that I was always at the same meeting that, that she was at. And you know, I sure do believe in predestination, so that's a good thing for me. Well, that created a rhythm of conversation, and eventually I asked her out, and we we went out to dinner, and we were having a really wonderful time, and we we went for a walk uh, at this nearby park, and I was running out of thoughtful things to say. I had plenty of things to say, but thoughtful things to say I was running short on. (laughs) And at that time in my life, I I knew that, you know, women loved guys who were really great-looking, who were really intelligent, who who were really athletic— you know, who had a lot of money and, you know, was spending it on on girls and and guys who just knew a lot about the Bible. And I was only four out of five of those things. (laughs) So, you know, I wanted to make sure that, you know, I, I could keep up. And so it turns out that my wife, Susan, was a literature major. And, you know, I was more of a math and science guy who read comic books, you know, growing up. And so I had a little bit of Old Testament literature in me and we were taking, I was taking a class on the prophets then and in true story. I really was captivated by, by, by my, my class on the prophets and I was really moved by Micah and, and I started to tell Susan, the prophet Micah is, is really amazing. Even his name, his name is really cool too. His name is a rhetorical question. It literally translates to who is like God. I mean, that's his name. Hi, my name is Tim. What's yours? Mine is who is like God. I mean, like, that's a really cool name. It's rhetorical. And and some translators have described it as, uh, has tra- translated as, who is on the Lord's side? There's even like this really great part at the end of Micah, in Micah 7, where Micah says to God, who is like you? And it's kind of like a, a wordplay on his own name. And I, 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 I think, we have a disagreement in our house, I think I said, what a great name for a kid. And Susan heard, if we get married and have a son, we should name him Micah. And in Susan's mind, it was like, who do you think you are? This is our first date. You can laugh all you want, uh, and you can believe who you want. I don't regret a thing. It worked out really well for me. But these days, we have four children, and we named our oldest Nathan Micah. And and here's a picture of, of our two sons Nathan's on the right, and that's Dylan on on the left. And and we named him Nathan because Nathan comes to us through the the, the beautiful miracle of adoption. Uh, Nathan literally means gift from God. Now, the good news is a great name, but the good news is that through Jesus, we can all be Micahs. We can all be like God through Jesus. We can all be on God's side through Jesus. With the power and the strength of the Holy Spirit, we can be more and more like God. We can be more just, we can be more loving, we can be more humble like God. And because of the strength of the Lord, we can resist the corruption that is in our hearts and the corruption that is, in our, that is around us. And so when people condescendingly ask you, who do you think you are? We can say, because of Jesus, we are people like Micah. We are a community chasing after the likeness of God. We are people pursuing to be on the Lord's side. Amen? Amen. I know as we, as we finish our message, we've hit some really intense themes. And, and this series is an intense series. And we've been talking as, a, as, as campus pastors uh, for the need for, for there to be a time of silence here at this campus and at the rest of your at the other campuses and also wherever it is that you are so we want to spend some time in reflection we want to ask God to to help us uncover where the corruption in our hearts lie and we want to ask God for the strength to lament and to repent and to rely on his grace so can we find a posture that is comfortable for us And bow our heads and go to the Lord in silence. Father, we pray that you would hear the silent prayers on our heart this morning. Amen. And friends, we've been offering a prayer of lament collectively. And so will you stand with me as, as we offer this prayer of lament together, wherever it is that you are? And it says, Heavenly Father, we lament that we live in a world that is far from just. We live among a people who are hesitant to show mercy. And we ourselves have failed to be humble. And yet, that is what you call us to be. Forgive us, O God, for all of our corrupted ways. And in your strength and grace, raise us up to be men and women who act, love, and walk in your ways. To the glory of your name, in the name of Jesus, we pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the power of your scripture. We're grateful, Lord, for the power of your spirit. We're grateful for the gift of forgiveness that that solves us and heals us of of our corruption, Lord. We thank you for this because we are frail and we know that we are weak and we are prone to wander. But we thank you, Lord, for your grace and your strength. We pray, Lord, that we would be the people that you have called us to be. So may you help us, Father, to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly before you. And may we do this with your strength. Amen.